Hey, welcome everybody. Welcome to the Winning Momentum Podcast with your host. That's me, Scott Sinclair. We are episode 204 of the Winning Momentum Podcast, possibly the best business and life strategies on the internet. That's what's being reported. Have you ever heard the question, maybe you're at a business event, uh, you're in a coffee shop, you're in an elevator. Hey, how are you? Great to meet you. What do you do? Uh-oh, do you have your elevator pitch ready? Are you going to fumble? Are you going to freeze? Will you immediately lose the interest of the prospect that has asked you what you do? Studies show that you have about four seconds to avoid that fate. I have uh, recently joined, I've mentioned this before on the show, I've recently joined a, a global financing group network uh, by the name of the founders, and it's uh, promoted and hosted uh, by a fellow you can look up on the internet uh, on any platform. His name is JT Fox with two X's. And I mentioned this before I joined this uh, founders group for a number of reasons, uh, maybe three months ago, feels like that now, two or three months ago. And they do weekly calls multiple weekly calls by Zoom, and you'll have several hundred people on the line, and members can pitch their deals for financing, and members hear those pitches and decide whether they want to participate in the syndication of that financing. And so, by the way, if you're interested in this group and you want to learn more, feel free to reach out to me, um, and I'm happy to make some introductions if I think it's a fit. So feel free to reach out to me for... JT's, Fox's, uh, the Founders Group. <clears throat> Anyways, at first, I think I reported on here that I was, I don't want to use the word, no, I'm not going to say that. I, but I was I was less than enthusiastic about, about the network, mostly because of the show nature of it. It's hard. It's going to be really hard for a guy like JT to host an event with 300, 400, 500 people on a Zoom call and have any substance come out of it and to keep it interesting. And he does a great job of that. I'll give you an example. I was on one early days, one of these uh, Zoom calls, and he had Vanilla Ice, the rap star turned entrepreneur on House hip hop star, maybe not rap. I don't know. Anyways, Vanilla Ice was on. It was super entertaining. I enjoyed it. I sat on my deck. I had a cigar. I watched the show. I was really impressed with Vanilla Ice as an entrepreneur. Now, did I learn anything? Not really. I was entertained. For me, it was like watching TV. But that's not why I signed up for the group. I signed up for the group to enhance my network, uh, see some deal flow potentially. And just out of interest, let's just see what comes out of that. And what I found myself doing, as I said before, was it, for me, it was like watching TV. And I don't have time to watch TV. I don't own a TV in my house for a reason. And so I, I, I sort of stepped away for a couple of weeks, and then I got back in. And I have to say that the, um, the platform, the network, has really evolved, and that, that whole team is doing a great job. And there's a lot more substance, substance now, anyways, from my perspective, uh, than there used to be. So um, as I said, every week what happens is there are multiple Zoom meetings um, for different reasons. And during these Zoom, Zoom meetings, members are given five minutes to pitch their deals to other members. Or they're given five minutes to introduce someone they know, because some of these people are intermediaries, brokers, to introduce these people to... Uh, someone else, introduce the members to someone else who can in turn pitch their deal for five minutes to the members. And the the deals are always for money. They're trying to raise money to support acquisitions, refinancings, uh, growth deals, similar transactions, has a very strong real estate bent to it, which is not particularly my world. But um, But that's what they do. And and in the course of that, as you can imagine, there's some very sophisticated people on there and some very successful people and some very novice people. But, you know, some of the pitches that you hear are, are terrific. They're really excellent pitches for the five minutes that is allotted to these people. But, but 
it is striking to me how bad a lot of those pitches are. Really bad. I listen for five minutes. And I leave unclear. I don't know what the business does. I don't know what the entrepreneur was wants. I don't know what the deal is. I have no idea. I spent five minutes of my life listening to these this pitch. I just walk out of there wondering what what the fuck was that all about? I have no ideas. You know, if you're doing a pitch, you need to remember that in simple terms, all investors need the same thing. They need to know what your business is and is in terms of what problem you are solving. What's the business? Why am I in this business? They need to know how to get into the deal, which means are you trying to borrow money from them? Are you trying to get them to buy equity in your business? And if so, what is the structure? What is the valuation? How do I get into the deal? How do I get out of the deal? How do I get in? But then how do I get out? So what is my exit strategy? If it's equity, are we going to sell? Are you going to do an IPO? Um, how are you going to get me out of this? At what valuation? What's the valuation growth going to be? The target, if it's a debt deal, what is the term of that debt, right? So how do I get in? How do I get out? And what happens in between to make sure that you're not going to lose my money? Risk mitigation, security on debt instruments, uh, management competence, cash flows and debt service capabilities. Those are the things that you need to know to manage the in-between. What is the capital stack? Where do you rank? Where do I rank compared to other people? Who gets their money out first? All these sorts of things. In simple terms, you have to be able to answer those questions. That's what an investor is looking for. And if you have five minutes, if you have five minutes in front of a global audience of some significantly wealthy people, if those wealthy people leave bored and wondering what that was all about, you you haven't done a good job. You have not done a good job. So as an example, uh, a couple of weeks ago, a fellow from another country, not in North America, and I'm going to try and tell you this story without disclosing too much information uh, because I don't want to speak inappropriately about anybody. I haven't signed any contracts in terms of disclosure um, so I'm probably free to say whatever I want, but I don't, you know, technically speaking, but I, I don't like to play that way. I like to try and just keep it above board and maintain others' confidences. So five-minute pitch comes on, and, and a gentleman uh, starts off, and it seems to me, based on the first sentence where he he explains sort of the industry he wants to be in and and the product that he's trying to create, It seems to me that he's in the perfect industry, perfect idea at the perfect time, okay? So my ears perk up. My ears perk up. Um, Now, he doesn't want to address too much. Uh, He didn't want to disclose too much. I don't want to disclose too much. But it did seem to me that it was a perfect idea at the perfect time. And, And it just addresses a massive global need and... There was recent big news, recent is in the last few weeks, of a similar concept with a different twist. So they're not really competing concepts, but a similar concept being funded for significant dollars at significant valuation just based on the idea. They hadn't gone anywhere in terms of IP or product creation yet. And so there's a lot of interesting things like as soon as this fellow opened his mouth, in addition to that, he said that he had some intellectual property and, you know, he designed a better widget and he's got intellectual property protections on that. And and that there was a reverse takeover in the mix. Imminent. An imminent reverse takeover. Probably four to six weeks away and they would be public. What is a reverse takeover? For those of you that don't know, that's when you are a private company as this person is, and you find a public company that has no other business in it because it used to be in Canada, say a defunct mining company. And now it's just, it just doesn't do anything. And 
the private company is bought by the public company. So public company buys private company, except private company is worth more than public company because public company has no business. It's just a company sitting there with shares trading on the shell, not on, on the exchange, not doing anything. And so when when the two companies are merged together as the shareholders of the private company, then end up owning most of the public company. That makes sense to you? So the existing public shareholders end up diluted, owning a little bit of this merged entity, which is public. But the private company, people got to go public and they gave away whatever, 5%, 10% of their business to go public uh, quickly. And usually, and that's what a reverse takeover is. And you usually, you usually combine that with a private placement and some you know, market making for your stock so that somebody buys the stock afterwards. Otherwise, nobody could care less. And so that's what a, an RTO, a reverse takeover transaction is. And so that perked my ear because it seemed to me pretty early listening to this fellow's pitch. He's in an interesting space. He may have some IP. The rest of what he's talking about is just gibberish, in my opinion, but if there's an RTO in place, if there's a reverse takeover transaction, it probably means there's sophisticated people circling around this deal somewhere. And he probably doesn't mean this uh, 70 million, 100 million, these crazy numbers that he's talking about in terms of financing. What he probably really needs is a million dollars or something to front the RTO. And maybe there's a role to play in making a market and we can make some decent money on this deal, on this trade. That's what's going through my head, just to give you some context while I'm listening to this guy. So he has a five-minute pitch to deliver to these uh, 400, 500 people on this call. And he starts up, starts off explaining that he has this, he's, he's solved this global problem where there's this global need. He's created a new widget. He's got this intellectual property. And then he says, I have no competition. No competition. Now, I have to tell you a little bit more about this deal. It's in housing, okay? I hope I'm not, I don't think I'm disclosing too much when I say that. So it's in housing. He says he has no competition. Well, most of the people in the world live somewhere, as one of the founders pointed out to this fellow. Um, They do already live somewhere, and therefore, there's competition. Now, what he meant to say is that he has a new way, he has reimagined how housing should work. And he has new IP, new ways to build, and nobody does what he does. But that's not the same as no competition, okay? So he starts off with that. And then the rest of the presentation becomes scattered, confusing, uh, vague, hyperbolic, and when some of the founders jump in and say, ah, well, what about this? What about that? Like, you're not being clear. This statement conflicts with that statement. He becomes hyper-aggressive and combative, interrupts them, doesn't let them finish their question. And it just turns into a circus, maybe a shit show, maybe something that I refer to it as, <laughs> and makes no sense, just made no sense at all. I, like, and as I walked out, I'm like, I'm not 100% clear what he does and how much money he's looking for and why. At one point he said he'd raised, he was looking for like $70 million. And then at another point he said he'd, he'd raised $70 million. So it was totally unclear. And as a result, how did the prospective investors react? Well, they reacted in kind with hostility and they challenged him on specific detailed questions, all of which were within their area of expertise. Somebody knew the jurisdiction that he was in and started asking detailed, specific questions about that jurisdiction and how this would work there, okay? Which is, if you're giving a five-minute pitch and you're getting into the weeds with somebody, you're you're screwed, okay? Someone knew something about the uh, environmental side of this and the impact on the earth and started challenging and trying to trip them up on that. Again, if you're that far into the weeds on a five-minute presentation, you should probably just go home. And so it all ended badly. People were heated. (laughs) 
And, uh, and that, uh, that was the end of that. So afterwards, I sent a note and I asked for a deep dive on this. Now, a deep dive is sort of a subsequent meeting specifically on that particular deal that some of the founders are interested in. And, and you can, and you know, the, the people pitching the deal, the, the CEO, the founders of that company or the broker or everybody gets on a call for an hour at least and gets right into the nitty gritty of due diligence to see if there's a deal to be done. And so I said, look, I'd like to have a deep dive on this. I'm specifically interested because you know, the guy that did the pitch, this, the founder CEO, you, you can't, you can't give your money to this person. That was just terrible the way that he did that pitch and does, you know, provides no comfort or trust in the way that he communicates with his prospective partners. <clears throat> Having said that, maybe he has a great idea. Maybe he has intellectual property that has some value and maybe maybe uh, there's this RTO and the reverse takeover and we could do something on that and help out that company, help out that uh, executive, that founder of that business and make some money and it's a good deal for everybody. I'll spend an hour um, diving deeper into that to see if that deal makes sense. And so I was accommodated we had a, a deep dive scheduled and we asked for a bunch of information. The person organizing the deep dive asked for a bunch of information, which included, hey, send us some financial statements, send us your capital stack. A capital stack is give me a list of everybody that's invested into this business. It doesn't have to be their specific names, but I've raised, you know, X dollars in debt, X dollars in subordinated debt, X dollars in preferred shares, X dollars in common shares, type, you know, structure class A, B, C, whatever, right? Because an investor wants to know, as I said, how do they get into the deal? Where do they fit in the overall structure? They asked for a corporate organization chart because when he was doing his five-minute presentation, it seemed there was a lot of entities and it was very confusing. He asked how much money had been raised, at what valuation. He asked uh, whether they've built any products with their IP or not and how the whole government regulatory side of things worked. And so that was um, that was the um, information asked for upfront to have this deep dive with this company. And I threw in my two cents of and also the impending reverse merger. I want to see every document on that, who you're dealing with, who are the market makers, what's the implied valuation, are you, you know, raising some money to go along with it, et cetera. So in a couple of days, we got back an email with the disclosures in answers to our questions. And that gave us plenty of time. It gave us a couple of days to review that information before the deep dive, except we didn't need a couple of days to review that information before the deep dive because there was really about five minutes of information provided. Most of it was corporate charts. And this fellow has, you know, had 20 or 30 companies in different jurisdictions with boxes and lines and this and that. It's, it's what I describe as the, uh, the madman takes over the world plan. <laughs> you know, I've seen this before. I was um, way back when, I don't want to tell you how many decades ago, I was working with a fellow who you know, in retrospect, was not above board. But one of the reasons I learned that he was not above board and uh, <laughs> was that I spent a week in uh, Monaco where he was living. And I was at the, I think it's a Fairmont there. <clears throat> it's been a long time since I've been there. Um, I was at the Fairmont, but we were working out of his flat and driving around in his uh, very nice Bentley ragtop uh, through Monaco, which back then was even getting a lot of looks, even in Monaco. And when you would go to his flat, to his office, there'd be the normal kitchen, dining room, bedrooms. <clears throat> but then there was his office at the other end. And it was a penthouse, of course, it was on top. And on the wall, like on four walls, was nothing but corporate structure. There were hundreds of companies all around the world in different jurisdictions with lines between them. And, you know, 
really he did nothing. He just moved assets around <laughs> and raised money. And uh, But he had his madman takes over the world plan. So I'd actually seen this before when our when our friend and the founders <laughs> brought forward this sort of plan in his disclosure for the deep dive. And that, of course, just caused me to roll my eyes and think, well, this guy's probably probably doing things he ought not to be doing. I try very hard in public not to call people a fraud. Um, so just know that I'm trying not to do that because in certain jurisdictions, and specifically mine, you just don't want to throw that word around lightly. Um, but I was turned off by the disclosure, let's put it that way, of the number of companies, specifically because of my Monaco experience, which is not the first time or the last time that I had experienced that, but it was just a story that came to mind. So you got the madman takes over the world plan without a ha- without actually having any business. And then for, for disclosures about, you know, the reverse takeover or people putting money in and how much he's raised, really what you got was no documents, but some screenshots of some text messages. So basically he had talked to people and um, that was his evidence on that. And then he disclosed no financial information because he said he needed non-disclosure agreements signed before he did that. So that is what we got. And I had alarm bells running beforehand, but I was thinking to myself, if we could isolate this guy for his own good, for everybody's good, um, take advantage of the existing intellectual property and the reverse takeover. And, you know, he... You know, sometimes inventors should not be founders and they should not be CEOs. That's the way I was viewing this is like, it sounds terrible to to sideline this guy, but, but sometimes that's what should be done with inventors for their own good. And, you know, they have to agree to it, obviously, but sometimes someone has to say to them, this is never going to work with you, but you have a tremendous idea. Let's work together to fix that problem. You stay over here. You give us the broad thinking, the technical advice, the whatever it is, the magic that you bring to the table. And, uh, and we'll do the other part of this. And then when we're done, what we're good at, somebody else can come in and take over from there. That may be one of the ways to, to start such a grand enterprise. And so anyways, um, when I got the disclosure and became increasingly frustrated with that, I did a little digging. And of course, as you could predict, I found out that this guy had been criminally charged with fraud in the jurisdiction that he was from, uh, not once, but twice. The first time he was charged and it went to trial and it ended in a mistrial according to the articles, by the way, these are from newspaper articles. And so... You know, I think in today's day and age, we need to respect the idea that the news is often fake. Okay. But according to the articles, he'd been charged with fraud twice. And the first time there was a mistrial because one of the lawyers became inexplicably ill and couldn't recover. So that's odd. But there was a, I, I feel like there's more to the story than that, but the criminal trial fell apart because of that. And then he was recharged, near as I could tell, with the same crime, which also ended in a mistrial because the judge became conflicted because the defendant, which is our guy, turns out he owed money to the judge's brother-in-law or some relative like that. <laughs> and so... Um, you know, I've been watching back uh, back uh, episodes of The Blacklist on Netflix recently, and um, notwithstanding, I don't have time to watch TV. And uh, the, reading these newspaper articles just reminded me of something out of that show. So the judge got conflicted, it all fell apart, and so here he is pitching to us. Um, so bottom line, he's been on trial for fraud, according to the newspaper articles, not convicted, but weird circumstances, not something that we ought to get involved with. And there was no evidence in the disclosures of any intellectual property or or anything being built at all. 
And so for that reason, we just dropped the idea of a deep dive and we all moved on with our lives. So why am I telling you this story? Because there's a lot of lessons to be learned from this about persuasion and negotiation, about um, due diligence and data rooms, about what sells and what doesn't sell, what human beings value, and how to do a business pitch. And so I thought we'd spend some time talking about each of those. And one thing that I will tell you as well <clears throat> that could, could be learned from this is that if you're a broker, if you're an advisor, if you're a business coach and you're lucky enough, lucky enough to be invited to this sort of group, do some Googling. It wasn't that hard. I'm no data analyst. I'm no, uh, <laughs> I'm no detective. Do a little Googling on the person that you're trying to bring into this deal. I mean, it's just ridiculous that this got through. It took me took me from the other side of the world to do a little research and find this out. It was crazy. Anyways, okay, let's talk about the things that we can learn from this. I want to remind you of the winning momentum methodology for persuasion and negotiation, the A-T-M-O-G. A-T-M-O-G. Attention, trust, meaning, openness, gap. First rule of persuasion you have to have some attention, right? If no one's paying attention to you, you can't persuade anything of anything, anybody of anything. If you want to negotiate something or sell something to somebody, you have to first have their attention. Trust. Without trust, you really can't do much of anything with a counterparty. And so I talk a lot on the winning momentum content about the idea of a trust bank, you know, you think about having a savings account with a counterparty and you have some trust in it. And over time, or you start with zero and over time you build up a little trust by doing things. And then, you know, one day you, you spend all that trust because you lied to that person or didn't fulfill a commitment or, you, you know, you weren't holding yourself accountable and you end up in a deficit in the trust bank and, and now you can't do a deal, right? And that's the way the world works. Attention, trust, meaning you want to negotiate with somebody, you need to understand what the issue really means from your counterparty's point of view. And then openness is what are you open to, what works for you, and then finding that gap you know, between meaning and openness, trying to find the common ground uh, in between that will work for everybody. But what I want, so ATMOG, attention, trust, meaning, openness, gap. But today, let's just focus on this trust part with respect to our, our, our friend who was presenting and pitching at the founders. You know, due diligence, due diligence is a Latin term for those of you not in the business world, is a Latin term for, you know, getting to the facts. I didn't look up the translation, to be honest with you. <laughs> but it's a Latin term for getting to the facts, verifying evidence, verifying uh, representations, and finding out risks uh, with a company, and particularly with an investment. You know, in layman's term, it's an act of, if I want to be an investor, I'm looking for yellow or red flags. You know, I listen to what you say. I'm listening for inconsistencies, things that don't make sense, things that I want to explore further to see if they're true or not. And and that's what due diligence is. And I'm looking for a reason to say no. I'm not looking for a reason to say yes. Most investors are not. I, I actually often am looking for a reason to say yes, but most investors are looking for a reason to say no. They already gave you the five minutes or the three minutes or the 30 seconds to do your quick pitch. They already said yes to the pitch. Now they're looking for why they might need to say no to the deal. That being the case, why give them a reason? Why blow your credibility and trust out of the water right off the bat by saying something like, we're reimagining housing and there is no competition. 
It's just a statement that makes no sense. And if you're saying that to people that are looking for a reason not to partner with you, bang, you're done. It didn't matter what this person said the entire rest of the five minutes. And that's the reason the whole rest of the five minutes turned so combative. It's because it was already over and everybody knew it. Everybody knew it the minute that phrase came out of his mouth because they don't trust him. And it turns out maybe there was reason for that (laughs) without me saying those words. So just remember the persuasion negotiation structure that I outlined for you, ATMOG. If you don't have trust, you don't have anything. And if the person doesn't know you and you have to build trust, you need to find ways to do that. There's lots of ways to do that. Producing content, by the way, is one of the ways to do that. Granting favors is one of the ways to do that. Beyond the scope of what I want to talk about today, a data room, by the way, another way to build trust. Here's point number two that we can learn from this experience. Having a properly structured data room, well, first of all, let's talk about what a data room is. A data room in the old days, if I can again age myself for you, in the old days when you used to do M&A deals or financing deals, um, someone would sign a term sheet, which is, yeah, I, I want to invest in your business and I'll do it generally on these terms, right? Assuming that everything you told me turns out to be true in my due diligence. And to do my due diligence, I need to review these 8,000 things. People have a checklist and it goes through basically everything that one might want to look at for due diligence in those particular situations. And rather than the company now spending a month gathering such contracts, financial records, um, this and that, rather than them doing it and the whole deal falling apart from a lack of momentum, because momentum is everything, which is why we call this the Winning Momentum Podcast, what the company would do is before they even went to market, they would create a data room, which was literally a room with some fold uh, file cabinets. And in there would be all the documents. And what would happen is if I signed a term sheet to invest in that company or to buy that company, you would then be invited to have access to the data room to sift through the files. And then if you didn't find everything you needed, you would ask for subsequent additions to the data room. Well, now, of course, you don't have these these physical data rooms, but you have virtual data rooms. So for example, we just do ours on Dropbox and all of you that know me and listen to this show that are in the business of M&A and some of you are software providers that create more sophisticated data rooms, you're going to say, well, that's a terrible piece of software and it's really lowbrow. And it is, but we use Dropbox for a lot of stuff, including a data room. So we put in the data room, all of the information that we know uh, a reasonable party is going to ask for due diligence on the deal that we're trying to pitch. And you, you know, you organize it into folders and different, you know, like accounts receivable and you put in there all the customers and et cetera, and legal contracts, you put everything in there and you itemize it. And at the top, you put a table of contents or an index and you keep adding to the data room as things change. Okay. And then when someone is interested in your deal and they want more information. For example, if I want to do a deep dive or a whole bunch of people want to do a deep dive to invest in your deal, you don't have to go away for a few days and then send a bunch of crap, including text message screenshots and ask for an NDA for the things that you didn't send. Instead, what you could do is you could just send one link one time. There's access to the data room will update it regularly as time goes by. That's how you deal with this professionally. And when you do that, it creates trust and it shows that you're serious about the transaction. People should not have to ask for the information. It should be there already. And again, deals are about momentum. They're about momentum. People get excited about something and then if it's not working and they'll just turn their mind to the next deal because people have to close deals. If you're in the business of closing deals, you have to close the deal, right? Or you need to go on to the next deal. So data rooms, anything you're doing in corporate finance, learn what they are 
and uh, just learned that if you say that there's a reverse takeover transaction weeks away, and when you're asked for evidence, you get a, you know, all that you send me is a screenshot of a chat message with a consultant who, by the way, lives 12 hour drive from my house. <clears throat> WTF. <laughs> Have a data room set up, know what it is. All right. Point number three that we can learn from this. I've said this on the Winning Momentum content uh, podcast before, maybe on the predecessor show to this. Benevolence is greater than trust, and trust is greater than competence. Competence is important. It's a barrier to entry, but it's not as important as trust, which is the ATM OG framework we talked about, and trust is not as important as benevolence. If you're if you are working in a company with a coworker and there's a big presentation due to senior management or some stakeholder and the coworker says I got this I'm going to do the powerpoint it's going to be awesome I'm going to go away and I'm going to work on that for a few days leave that in my department and you do and you show up for the for the presentation and the PowerPoint's projected onto the wall. It's full of typos. It doesn't add. It doesn't make any sense. Your coworker is incompetent and it embarrassed you, your team, the whole company, right? How do you feel about that in your core? Well, you might be pissed off. You might be frustrated. But you're probably going to get over that quickly and find a way to work around the incompetence of that employee or to try and isolate them, you know, just try to deal with that situation, but it's not a personal affront to you. It's not damaging in your core. Now that that's incompetence. Now, if that same story was happening and the coworker said that they were going to do this and they told you a few days in advance that they would take responsibility and you said, great, and then every day you check with them, how's it coming? They're like, oh, great. You cannot believe how good this is going to be. I'm talking about this. I'm talking about that. And then the next day you do the same thing, coming along. Yeah, I almost finished. It's really a terrific presentation. And the day comes to the presentation and the coworker says, what PowerPoint? Oh, I didn't do that. I thought you were doing that. They just lied about it. How do you feel now? Now you're angry. Now you're hurt and emotional not hurt in like, uh, you know, more, more in an angry and, and uh, let down and lied to sort of way. <clears throat> and it's a much stronger feeling, if you think about it, than the idea of the co-worker being incompetent. And the reason for that is that humans value trust more than they value competence. Okay? This co-worker lied to you. You feel much stronger about them that than if they tried and failed. Okay, we all agree on that. Now, what if a coworker in your same company says to you one day, hey, I got to go out and do some errands. I need you to come with me. Maybe I'm going to go see a customer or whatever and gives you a reason to get you in a vehicle and then starts driving you around. You're confused what's going on and you end up going to a bar. Not what you, not what they told you they were going to do, but you end up this person takes you to a bar. When you walk in the door, there's a surprise birthday party for you. People jump out, they yell, hey, surprise, happy birthday. I'm thinking of that because I was just recently at a surprise birthday party. I'm not sure I'd ever done that before. It was cool. Anyways, um, people jump out and, and yell, surprise, are you angry that you were lied to to get you to that event? You're not. Why? Because humans value benevolence more than they value trust. Benevolence trumps trust. Trust trumps confidence. When you're doing a pitch, you need to remember that. If you're pitching your competence, hey, my firm was incorporated in 1932 and we've gone this and we've done that. No one cares. You need to pitch benevolence. If you're pitching competence, you're doing it wrong. Competence is a barrier to entry it's not a persuasive point. So 
back to our friend doing the pitch. If you come across like an asshole immediately, where do you think you rank on the benevolent scale? <laughs> Probably not very good. You're not going to get this deal done. Lastly, business pitches. You've got five minutes in this particular instance, but let's talk about business pitches in general. You need to be prepared. And if you are responsible for pitching your business, for pitching anything, you need to have three pitches memorized, ready to go off the top of your head. Three different pitches. The elevator pitch, as people call it, this is the idea that you get into an elevator. Someone says to you, hey, what do you do for a living? And you've got five floors to explain what you do, what your company does. So let's call that the no more than 30-second elevator pitch. You then need the no more than three-minute pitch which is basically the elevator pitch plus a story. And then you need the no more than five minute pitch, which is what the pitch on this founders group ought to have been from the person that we've been talking about. So what goes into a 30 second pitch? And again, it's called the elevator pitch. You need to limit this to one or two sentences and you need to be immediately interesting because Multiple psychology studies show that you have roughly four seconds to capture or lose the mental attention of the person that you're pitching to. Four seconds. So you're just like right out of the gate. If you start talking about, my name is Scott, my company is Sinclair Range, and it was incorporated in whatever date, you're done. You're done. You haven't captured anything. So one or two sentences, strongly out of the gate, and the one or two sentences describes what your business does and why. And to be most persuasive, you should immediately invite the recipient to participate. That gets them interested, and it helps to keep their attention. So here's an example of my company, Sinclair Range, of the elevator pitch that I might use for that. Hey, Scott. What do you do for a living? Imagine a SWAT team repelling into troubled situations, but for business. We buy, lend, consult. Uh, we buy, lend, and consult to troubled businesses to turn them around with a view to saving jobs and rescuing, rescuing, and even enhancing shareholder value. Okay, that's it. I asked the listener to do something, which is to imagine a SWAT team, very visual persuasion. Um, I asked them to imagine something that's immediately interesting and frankly a little weird, a little strange. I mean, who says what they do by starting off with imagining a, a SWAT team repelling into something? And then I explain clearly and concisely what we do. We buy, we land, or we consult to troubled businesses to turn them around, save jobs, save shareholder value. That's it. There's the elevator pitch, Okay. Now, the three-minute pitch. If you have more time than the 30 seconds, which is going to be the bulk of your pitches, but if you have more time, say you're at a cocktail party, a networking event, you've got your drinks in your hand, now you can go into the three-minute pitch a little bit longer than just the one or two sentences and walking off to the next person, right? Um, You will need an expanded pitch, therefore, and I said not longer than three minutes, and this is exactly your elevator pitch plus a story that illustrates the magic of your product or service. And that story that you tell has to have a problem, preferably has to have some drama, meaning there's consequences to the problem. It's all going to go bad. Someone's going off a cliff and we rescue them, right? Um, And the drama keeps your listener engaged And then, of course, the story has to show your involvement in the solution and the solution. So, for example, my three-minute pitch for Sinclair Range might be, oh, what do I do for a living? Scott, what do you do for a living? Well, imagine. Imagine a SWAT team repelling into a troubled situation, but for business. My company, Sinclair Range, buys, lends, and consults 
to troubled businesses to turn them around, save jobs, and rescue shareholder value. You know, we were recently sought out by an owner-manager who had bought a manufacturing business maybe three, five years ago. And after he bought it, post-closing, he found out that the past earnings that he had bought, the, the, the historical earnings of the company, on which the purchase price was based were, were a complete fraud. In reality, the business wasn't making money, it was losing money, and he was personally funding millions of dollars of losses every year, and he was out of money. He was quickly running out of money, and things were just going from bad to worse. The bank wanted his money back, key suppliers were unpaid, he had stopped delivering uh, to customers, and... Um, and uh, his fill rates as a result to those customers was just completely unacceptable. And the major customers wanted to bail on the company. The company wasn't going to survive. There were 200 jobs at stake, as well as the health and well-being of the owner's family. The tremendous amount of stress and family pressures that come with that. So anyways, we met this fellow and he engaged us at Sinclair Range. And I was able to bring in my team to fill key positions within the organizations. And in fact, I personally took over as an official officer, uh, as an officer of that corporation. In short order, we were able to do all sorts of things. We were able to secure working capital, uh, so more money for the business to buy us more time to implement the turnaround plan. We were able to improve operational performance by targeting the culture of the organization, which we did through re-engineering uh, routines completely throughout the organization. Uh, we were able to improve key performance margins, and we lowered overheads. We were able to restructure the key supplier debt without a formal filing um, in insolvency. And and it was a really desperate, difficult situation. In the course of our overhaul, we had to replace more than half of this entire senior management team because they're unwilling to change. You know, one of our one of our principles in in troubled situations is that if you're losing money, if things aren't going the way you think they need to go, then you need to change what you're doing. And if you run into management teams that are resistant to change, well, you need to change them. So we had to do that. Anyways, bottom line, a year later, one year later, the business was profitable and employment had in fact increased. We were more than 200 employees by the time we were done. We were able to leave the business, replace ourselves with more permanent management that continued to increase operating efficiencies and profitability. Now, I didn't time myself on that, but that's about a three minute plus or less, uh, plus or minus pitch. And, um, it's exactly, it is exactly the elevator pitch plus an illustrative story that has some drama shows what we do for a living and allows the listener to participate and be interested in the story. And then the five minute pitch and the five minute pitch is really the three-minute pitch with a couple of additions, okay? Now, when would you have a five-minute pitch? You have to think that the five-minute pitch would be not a coincidental meeting or a chance meeting like at a cocktail party, but rather a scheduled business discussion. You could be asked to pitch on the founders, as we described uh, earlier, as I described earlier on this show, maybe you're meeting a, a business development prospect uh, for coffee. And so you got some time to do your pitch or you're some other networking event where you have this long form, um, where you have this time to do a long form pitch. Well, what you should be doing is you should be doing your three minute pitch plus a couple of other things. One other thing is you should have a statement that makes your pitch relevant to the specific lender, okay? Such as, what do I do? Well, look at my company's Sinclair Range, and we're raising, whatever, $10 million to fund our growth, okay? Um, so just give a, a context so that the listener knows, the prospect knows why they're listening to the rest of your story, all right? So give them that up front. Hey, we're trying to raise some money. This is what we do. And you should put that, insert that that new section in between the 30 second and the three minute. So you give your 30 seconds right off the bat, your elevator pitch, and then, and then you move into we're raising some money and then you tell the story, okay? Um, you should 
you should include content. So the second edition is to include content to build trust in your capabilities. And I would do that after the three minute uh, pitch. So after I had done, if it was the Sinclair range again, that we turned this business around. Now they're making money. We replaced ourselves. We exited. Everybody lived happily ever. I would then say, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years. I've been doing this for 30 years. I've done it for tens of billions of dollars in transaction value in 27 different countries. I have a great team around me and I would just start hitting some facts as to, as to what we are in an effort to provide context to me and to Sinclair range and to build our credibility, the trust factor in the ATM OG. And you should end your five minute pitch with an ask. Right, because again, this is premised on the idea that you're there for the reason. You're there, you're pitching on the founders for five minutes. There should be an ask at the end of this. You can't just let it fizzle out into anger. <laughs> so the ask should be should be specific. I don't know what your capabilities are as a founding group, but I'm raising $70 million. I will take it in $1 million increments. I'm offering equity at a certain valuation and what I would ask from this five minutes is that we move to the next step of a deep dive, get into due diligence, let's start negotiating a term sheet, who's on board, right? There's your ask, and that's what's included in your five-minute pitch. And I think, I think that's all I wanted to talk about today on this hot, late summer day. Remember, Remember the ATMOG for persuasion and negotiation. Know what data rooms are. Have them ready. Deals are about momentum. Benevolence is greater than trust is greater than competence. If you're the job of, if part of your job is pitching, have three pitches ready to go. The 30 second, the three minute, the five minute. That's it for me. I will see you next week. Thank you for listening. Remember, thescottsinclair.com, thescottsinclair.com. For more content, come and subscribe. Get on the newsletter. Lots of good things are going to start happening there in the fall. It was great talking to you. We will see you next week.